Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice from world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Sachi Taulale. For the past three years, Sachi has been the design center of expertise lead at ANZ, Aotearoa, New Zealand's largest bank. How large is large, I hear you ask? Well, to put that in perspective, ANZ represents 1% of New Zealand's GDP and employs one in five people who work in finance in New Zealand. Sachi has worked at ANZ for almost nine years, first in the capacity of senior website manager before moving into senior UX design roles that encompass both the qualitative and quantitative aspects of design. In her current role, Sachi is actively enabling teams to embed design at scale, building the bank's design capability and advocating for and demonstrating the value of design through excellent UX, service design and design operations. Her contributions have been recognized with gold at the New Zealand Best Design Awards and she has shared her experiences at events such as UX Homegrown. Sachi also mentors Masters of UX Design students at the Wellington ICT Graduate School. Widely respected and recognized as a design leader and, and a leading voice for Pacifica people in design and technology, I've been very much looking forward to bringing Sachi's stories and perspective to you on Brave UX today. Sachi, talofalava, welcome to the show. Talofalava, Brendan. Fafatai lava mole avanoa. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, Sachi, I am 100% enthusiastic about today's conversation. I really did enjoy researching all the great things that you've been doing as a design leader. And something that you actually sent me that isn't specifically related to design leadership that caught my eye was that your mother, Michiko, was a Japanese-American and that she was born in an internment camp during World War II in the United States and was raised there before coming to New Zealand as an adult later in her life. Why did her family leave Japan? So it's such an interesting story. I think my mother um, has had a massive impact on my life, but it, in reflection, it's probably a lot more after she passed. You know, when you lose someone who's really special and loved, there's an aspect of that trauma of, of a want of a different a word, makes you kind of reflect on who you are as an individual and, and even your whakapapa, if you think about from a, that Māori terminology around understanding who you are and where you come from. So my mother, I don't actually know the reason why um, her parents migrated to America. And that largely comes from that whole episode of them having been interned in those camps, created this whole sense of shame to a certain extent, around denial of their own culture. They were stripped of all their assets and belongings and had to pretty much start from scratch after the war had, had ended. They never really talked about it either. So mum never really referenced it or um, when I asked her why they didn't really talk about it amongst the families, it became a very 
or that was just something that had happened and we moved on. So there is an aspect of being resilient within that story, being overcoming a lot of adversity. But also for me personally, it was very much um, that whole recognition of where you come from and what that actually means, particularly for people who move to countries and migrate to different countries and cultures. And so there's an interesting conversation that happens when you start to explore kind of reasons why people move and then once they're there, how they assimilate and be accepted, then create their own stories within those communities. Yeah, and I mean, your mother strikes me from what I what little I know of her as someone that was quite brave. She did eventually migrate from the United States to New Zealand as well. What was it yes. that brought her here? So um, before she, we moved to New Zealand, she actually joined the Peace Corps. So she was w- one of the first Peace Corps volunteers that went across the world from that initiative that John F. Kennedy created, which was trying to bring more connections between the US and other parts of the world, particularly in relation to what the war had done. And so she actually had never been outside of America before that period of time. Again, I always queried, why why did she do that? (laughs) If you knew my mother, she was not a risk taker. She was not someone who was an adventurer by any means. She was very much a homebody most of her life. But there was this one point in time when she had graduated from university and then there was a talk that was um, being held at at college. Um, She went to the University of California in Santa Barbara. So she went to this talk and then they were talking about volunteering and she off the cuff decided to do it. There was no rationale. I said to her, why did you... Uh, I thought it would be upgraduated. There was nothing else that she had planned out for her life. And she didn't even know where Samoa was when she got to sign to go to Samoa. She thought it was in so, South so America. So that's where she went. That's where they yeah. That's where, where they sent her. <laughs> that's right. She went with a whole group of people, went to Samoa, and that's where she met my father. So um, that's the connection there. We're, we were Samoan Japanese, Japanese-American. So, yeah, from there, we, we grew up there. I spent most of my childhood there. I only We only moved to New Zealand for university, so most of my childhood was spent in Samoa. But again, she moved there, didn't know the language, met my father on a blind date. He was a tag-along with somebody else and crashed their date. <laughs> <laughs> Good on it. I actually, I actually met the, the the person she went on a blind date with much later on in life. I think I was an adult, and he said to me, "I could have been your father." <laughs> <laughs> um, another sound beautiful Samoan man. So then they moved back to America um, after that time in Samoa. I was born in America, and all of my siblings were as well. And then we moved back to Samoa when I was seven because my dad's grandfather passed away. And so he had to take on the, the Matai title for the family. You spoke yeah. about your mum being a homebody. Very much. <laughs> what was it like? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a fascinating interweaving of culture going on yes. here. You know, you spoke yes. about, we spoke about your mum being Japanese but born in America. So there's obviously yes. an American influence, a Japanese influence, and now a Samoan influence in the yes. picture what was it like for you and your sister growing up in such a, a what i assume was a very rich cultural envir- environment 
Yes. So there's three of us actually. I have an older brother. He's back in America now, uh, living in Virginia, and my younger sister. So I'm the middle child. Growing up in Samoa, I'm so grateful for because of the, our mixed heritage. It actually gave me a grounding in terms of identity. I think if I had been born elsewhere, it would have been much more difficult for me to know my um, whakapapa and my identity. But because I grew up in Samoa and I don't actually look Samoan, that equipped me with a, a whole lot of knowledge and understanding of the culture and even the language, which has allowed me to navigate the Western world and then the Samoan world very easily. And so I'm grateful for that. I, I can see a lot of the Samoan born and our generations here struggle with that. My husband's one of them. I'm sure he <laughs> wouldn't mind me mentioning that, that he was born here in New Zealand and so it doesn't have that um, language necessarily. Him and his parents were uh, had some hard times, you know, they were the first generation of Samoans who came to New Zealand and um, assimilation was the, the main drive. Be like everyone else, don't learn the language. In order to succeed, you need to learn English at school. And so, yeah, that's the whole generation of, of people that are, you know, just he's just starting to get to know his own culture um, now and has just started in the job where he is at the Ministry of Health working in the Pacific unit and loving it, <laughs> you know, but that has, he has his own journey of coming to grips with, with all of that too. Yeah. And I definitely want to want to get into that with you in the context of different communities in New Zealand, but I think there's a, I don't know if there's a direct equivalence, but I suspect that around the world, particular, particularly in Western societies, there's, there'll be some interesting territory for us to explore there. And in terms mm. of that assimilation and, and some of the other uh, perhaps yeah. more negative aspects of Western culture and how they have impacted our other ethnic communities within our countries. Sachi, I just want to come back to your mother. I understand that she sadly passed away in 2018. And something that came from that sad occurrence was that you have since become a biographer at Mary Potter Hospice. And mm. that really, that struck a chord with me and it's something that I wanted to explore, if I may, with you on the show sure. today. I understand that as part of a biography, you have to do interviews, not potentially not too yes. dissimilar to what we're doing today. What is it like and how do you approach doing an interview with someone who's at a very special stage, the end mm. of their life? It's interesting how you talk about uh, events in life that, have an impact on shaping who you are. My mother's death was one of those. And I do think that is something that most, you know, all people experience throughout the, life, the, the beginning and ending of life and, and its cycle. For me, I didn't know how I would respond until it actually happened. And mum, I was so blessed and fortunate that mum came and stayed with us to, towards the end of her life. And she actually passed away under our care. And that was such a beautiful experience for me to be a part of. And it helped me tremendously in the grieving process because I could see that her passing was actually, she was in a lot of pain towards the end. And so it was a blessing for her to actually be at peace. But then it also allowed me to, to have that time with her and to talk to her about her life and kind of her, what she had thought she, her life would turn out to be and the sacrifices that she made that I was not, you know, as children, we don't realize how, how many sacrifices 
our parents make for us. And, and then I kind of realized that grief and dealing with death is not something that I'm very adverse to. Like I, it's something I'm quite comfortable with. And you don't know that until you're in that type of situation. It feels really strange saying that. But there was, again, my sister had a completely different reaction to it. So here, here we are, sisters, very, very close. She actually, I would say, was mum's best friend when she was um, alive. They did everything together. Well, you know, shared a lot of experiences and, and so forth because she was the youngest and was the one that was with mum towards the, the longest. And so it was a, she had a very different reaction to me. And so again, that was reflection on, on my part around why that was and why did I respond differently to death just in general and grief. Mary Potter Hospice was fabulous during that whole time where she needed their care. Very supportive. Every single person that worked in that um, organization approached us with empathy and care and so much loving and understanding. And so you very immediately create this connection with them. There was one instance where a nurse had to come at 3 a.m. in the morning because we ran out of drugs for mum. No problem at all. They just come across. And I remember, you know, this lady walking in the door and I just had this just whole sense of gratitude. They were, and again, they're paid not very much <laughs> in the scheme of things, but the service that they provide is so valuable and, and rewarding. So and they should be paid passed, much more. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's just really ridiculous how we don't value that uh, in society, that type of craft and service. So when she passed, it became a, I still had that connection to Mary Potter. We were so super grateful for them. And I wanted to volunteer. I had seen that, you know, there had volunteers that came through the inpatient unit all the time. But they had this stand down period that you can't do it until you've had a, about a month, uh, sorry, not a month, a year uh, between the passing of a loved one, just, you know, because you don't know how you will respond in those circumstances. But I had this real desire to, to do it. So when that time was up, I reached out and said, I'd like to to do, to volunteer. I actually started as a receptionist. You can't be a biographer straight off because you need to do other work within the hospice to kind of get used to working in that type of environment and then you can become a biographer. So, so I think I was a receptionist for about a year. And again, that was really beautiful because I was able to interact with the nurses who actually cared for mum too, and that they were still there and we developed really close relationships and you are able to greet um, people as they come in and you kind of understand completely what, what, where they're at, they're, they're at in their journey and so forth. So. Yeah, the biography thing has been so rewarding and we often say as biographers that we get more out of it than the person that we're working with. Because, what is that? Uh, what has it given yeah. you? <laughs> I think there's a whole there's a whole beauty about someone in that stage of life who's reflecting on their life story and also what messages or what they want to pass on. It's a very, very reflective state. Some people are really, really prepared and know exactly what they want to talk about. Some are, I don't, I don't have anything interesting to say. And then they, they just sit there and tell you about their life. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> that, <laughs> they um, were wrong. It's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Keep telling but, me. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. I can't um, believe that you did all that. But 
I learned so much just about family, the influences people have on each other, being really grateful for things that you've done in, in life. Or the most beautiful one I had was, was, was a, it was a group session and people came to the session. We don't normally do this, it's usually one-on-one, but this was a impromptu session where people just shared their stories about the person to the person and I was so in awe of you know the person themselves was the one that was like I don't have anything interesting but when you hear their story from other people and the and kind of the words of gratitude and yeah it's a completely I don't know I'm stuck for words now and how to even describe it it's very very heartwarming and just makes you believe in humanity again yeah Yeah. I mean it's truly a a special time in all all senses of the word word, and also special to hear those stories I can imagine Mm. being someone who's personally not very good uh handling death yes I'm projecting a bit here but I imagine that could present some challenges for your own emotional health you mentioned that you were quite good with with dealing with the passing of your mother compared to how your sister Uh, dealt with things but in the context of being a biographer and facilitating these interviews and and hearing all these amazing stories about someone who is likely not going to be here much longer how do you manage your own emotional health in that setting it's really tricky because that's a really good question and to be quite honest I haven't really reflected specifically around how to manage all those the different emotions you go through I, I feel we we talk about it as a biography group but we have a session every month around looking after yourself and some tips and tricks around how to just come away from it because when you have a session you actually you feel quite emotionally drained a little bit afterwards so going for a walk or sitting and sitting and reflecting and reading a book is also a really good way to unwind for me i don't have a specific thing i think because my life is so busy very busy at work and very busy at home to with the kids the aspect of just coming back home is something that allows me to just put that aside and and kind of do the next thing that that's on the list i think i could be much better <laughs> with with just uh, spending some more time for me, uh, is, is if I was to think about an area of growth, that would be it. Like, and I think most, a lot of women, or some, uh, and, and um, men as well, do with our busy, busy lives, eh? putting ourselves first is often quite hard to do. Yeah, and I was speaking the other week with Lada Golenko, who runs, mm. um, is director of research at Mural. And she started out her research career professionally uh, in a prison in Ukraine. And we touched on this similar sort of intensity of of situation where often as, and again, I'm not trying to draw draw an equivalency between what you're doing and design, but I am interested in exploring if there are some parallels here. We don't often have the training or the support networks as Mm -hmm. uh, designers or designers that are doing research or as UX researchers to handle and process some of the more challenging situations that we put ourselves in or can find ourselves in with participants. And I wondered if anything, again, I'm projecting a little bit here, but has there been any, anything that's come from this emotional and time investment that you've put into your biography work at Mary Potter hospice that you've been able to um, see changes in the way in which you approach your design practice or any interesting parallels that you believe are there? Absolutely. I think that I'm very much someone who 
takes every interaction as a learning opportunity. You know, I always think, what did I, that was really interesting engagement because they're all different people that you work with. And so what's something that's, that I've, and often it is just a grounding. And I think that's very important too, to have in life where you're, you're, you've got a million things on the plate and then you go to a biography and nothing else matters. It's the best way to get your feet back on the ground. You know, so you're, <laughs> I've used that as an aspect of, when life's so busy, I reflect on some conversations I've had with somebody and that immediately makes me go, okay, that's not, I don't need to worry about those two emails that are driving me, you know, like it's in the <laughs> scheme of things, it's very, very little in terms of the work that I do in that biography space. I think for, in terms of design, it's made me absolutely more empathetic in my craft too and how I even engage with people on a day-to-day basis because you come across so many different people so therefore you're you that just highlight that you can't approach you know the same the conversation the same way there's different different um, techniques that you or different ways of connecting and I think the thing that I struggled a little bit initially as a biographer is that we're very it's a very professional relationship and so you don't get into who you are as a person it's more about the person that you're uh, interviewing or recording and the very first three people that I um, spent time with were Māori and Pacific and so that to me was a a very different dynamic because actually the first session we were connecting and that's just what you do in the Māori and Pacific communities is you do who are you who are you from who's your who what part of Samoa are you from you know that's a kind of connection where you typically aren't meant to do that strictly within that um, you're meant to create a relationship but not as much as a friendship or a, it's still a very professional engagement now that's something mm. interesting there right right there in terms of that culture clash that we alluded to earlier in the conversation, you know, with the first uh, Samoan people migrating to New Zealand and being expected to sort of conform to the Western values and leave the language behind, you know, here's a situation where probably for for some good reasons, there's been a setup where you're supposed to leave yourself out of this interview picture. Yes. Which isn't uncommon, I suppose, in UX research either. That's also one of the things yeah. that you're, you know, you're supposed to make the participant feel comfortable, uh, but you're not really yes. there to share a lot about who you are. But yet no. culturally in Māori and Samoan communities, Pacifica communities, that's yes. actually going against what is most natural. Absolutely. <laughs> so this so is where you, I struggle a little you, yeah. bit with that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, and tell me, tell, tell us about yeah. that. I'm really wanting to change it because I think there, um, there, there are ways where our current methodology around design thinking general is, it doesn't suit um, all cultures. And, and, and for the longest time, I tried to, I tried to fit in. And I think I'm of, of the generation of people who assimilated. You know? And so that came comfortably, but also not comfortably, if that makes sense. I knew how to do it because I'd done it pretty much all my life, but it felt wrong. And there's an aspect of that that I still carry uh, with me on the back. And there's a niggling voice at the back of my head around that doesn't feel right, but that's what we've been told to do. And this is the right way to conduct research as opposed to the way that we connect and, and have talanoanga or conversations in the Pacific community is completely different. And if we were to approach it using 
strict kind of research methodology, it would not succeed or wouldn't get the outcomes that you're seeking to to achieve. And for people listening to the podcast, which, you know, this is a global audience, you know, a good proportion of which are from Aotearoa, New Zealand, but there are mm. uh, the majority are from overseas. So just to paint that picture clearly for, for those people that, and, and for myself, quite frankly, you know, I don't want to yeah. assume just because I'm a New Zealander that I understand this because I don't. Um, yes. What is, what is the, like, what are those Key differences that you yeah, might right. have between, say, a, a European, New Zealand, Western way of okay. approaching those conversations and a Pacifica yeah. way of approaching those conversations. Right. Okay. Good question. I think you remember when I asked you about the name of your um, company, The Space In Between. Yes. The reason yes. for that <laughs> is because in the Samoan cultures, and, and there's similar type within the Pacific cultures in general, there's a thing called Te Uleva which is is respecting the space. <laughs> so um, we are people who connect through all relationships to the land, to uh, our atua, to, to God. And Māori, I think, are very similar. So that we're, we think of things holistically uh, rather than kind of one-dimensional. So in, in order to, to, to even start a talanoanga, you have to have, or that um, discussion, you have to have respect and you have to, to understand what your relationship is and respect that bar, that space. So that's critically important in the, in the, in the Pacific communities, particularly in Samoa. You can't just go in and talk to whoever and, and recruit people, you know, in our current um, ways that we recruit people through, you know, sending out invites and getting people to sign up. Like if you were really wanting to do research within a community, like the Samoan community, that would not, that would not go uh, well <laughs> because people exist within a paradigm within a village or a nu'u or a ainga or a church and there are roles that everyone plays within that and you have to understand the dynamics and the context in which they exist as people in order to then kind of get to the the research or the the outcomes that you're seeking if that makes sense does that make sense <laughs> yeah it makes complete yeah. sense yeah i suppose a lot of uh, research approach has been from the western context and it's not actually until I was preparing for this interview that I started to think about what that actually means for the participant experience or the people that we're trying to learn from. Yes. So I think this is a hugely important conversation. And I, again, I'm, I'm probably stepping outside of my uh, remit here, but I imagine that there are also many parallels across non-Western cultures that we interact mm. with in the product and design community as well. And that we yes. can do with a little bit more understanding, respect, and perhaps some adaptation of our methods in order to make sure that what we're learning and how we're going about that is done in a way that is respectful to the people that we're learning for and not yes. one-dimensional. Yes, that's right. I think that's there's huge opportunities in that space to do much better and you will get better outcomes and better research as a result. Of doing that yeah I've only just realized how I, I spoke about before about being the generation of assimilators so I've, I've, I've only just come to realize what the meaning of imperialism and co colonialism is you know I've never really looked into it or read up about it but I've was just starting to come to the realization that a lot of the research that we learned at university was based 
particularly within the Pacific communities. Like I think about my mum used to be a teacher. She had books on her bookshelf living back in Samoa. One of them was Margaret Mead's anthropologist. Her research into Samoan society and culture back then, particularly around adolescence. And then, you know, and then reading now about her methodology and the impact that that research has done in creating kind of not stereotypes, but, you know, thinking around how the Samoan culture is um, or was back in that time is hugely impactful based on not a lot of, you know, rigor in terms of that methodology. So there's ongoing impacts for my culture or and my community yeah. based on that. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those conversations <laughs> that I don't think that we are having, and I'm really pleased to be able to have it with you on Brave UX in this episode. Now, I want, I want to shift gears slightly okay. uh, from research, but into uh, something else that is um, in- incredibly important and topical for us to talk about, which is the mm-hmm. massive shift to online that businesses and other organizations have been going through as a result of COVID-19. Yes. But that acceleration has made it difficult for some groups of society to keep up. Generally yes. speaking, if it's possible to do so, how have Māori and Pacifica people's lives been impacted by what's happened in the last 18 months? I think, yeah, there's there's been huge impacts. But again, in that article I wrote, these inequalities have existed prior to COVID, it was just COVID came along and highlighted even more the inequities that exists within our society. It is a problem that there are quite a lot of organizations and um, groups and people trying to, to address and solve. So there isn't one solution to it. I think there's it's a multi-pronged, multifaceted response that needs to happen across the board. Government, education institutions, corporates like um, the one I work for, all need to to pitch in to to help. But the impact I I think is real. You know, we often and I can be and guilty of this to a certain extent. I talk about it, but I don't see it on an everyday basis. You know, I'm I'm also quite far removed from uh, the reality of people who are in the communities now, even in South Auckland, going through what they're going through in the recent cases. That is the reality, which a lot of us don't get to see very often on a day-to-day basis. But I hear about it through, you know, the connections I have within the community. So we're all kind of slightly removed from it. And and I'm answering this question very badly. (laughs) No, I I think one of the things that comes to mind for me, and I wondered if this is something that you had heard through the community as well or had experienced, was when I was talking to Jared Spall a couple of months ago, he highlighted the issue of lack of access to appropriate devices in households that now had to homeschool children largely because mm. of economic factors. But as we know, those economic factors disproportionately affect certain ethnicities within society more than others. You know, how, yes. how has, you know, what has been the impact on the tamariki, the children um, yes. in these communities from, from what we're all doing now at the moment in New Zealand, yeah. which is sitting, sitting at home because we're not able to go yes. to work? True. Like, how yes. has this played out? Well, it's, it, devices is one thing, but actually people are struggling just to feed themselves and to survive. Mm. Like, um, 
that's really the reality of it. And you can't, the, the secondary education and access to the internet devices is secondary if you're if you're in that situation. And often, and this is something that we're try, trying to um, work through with the work that I'm doing, which is very small in comparison to some of the other trusts are doing um, in the community, is helping create opportunities in the workforce. So there's two, two angles we can take at it. There's new talent, so people who, um, uh, education, you know, the, the graduates were coming out of schools and providing opportunities for them that way. And or even earlier on when there's selecting subjects to study. My son's going through that right now. He's 13. He has a whole list of subjects that he can select for year 10 next year. And he's often going to, you know, the thing that he will, would like to do versus, you know, something that's aligned to a career that we're thinking about now. And so having those conversations even now helps guide our young people into career paths for them. One aspect, there's another aspect around just providing opportunities for people who are going through, you know, or, or need, need, need a chance. Yeah, and I, I talk about um, paying it forward because someone actually did that for me um, at one point in time and, and stuck their neck out and said, give her a chance and look where I am now. If that person hadn't done that for me, I don't know where I would be. It would have been a completely different pathway. And with the way that we recruit, we've just successfully placed someone from and a relationship that we've built with MSD into our team because we we were trying to look at other ways to recruit rather than the normal workplace job at on seek and, and and see what happens. You know, we actively have to seek people out <laughs> and and create spaces for for them in order to to create a really diverse workforce. Yeah, like so, the spaces we were just talking about. Yeah. 100%, yeah. yeah like, like how we were talking about before in terms of research approach. Um, yes. We can't just necessarily apply the same approach and expect a different result in order to create a more diverse work workforce. Now, we were talking yeah. about recruitment. You know, I understand yes. that in your office, you can yeah. literally count the number of Pacifica people on your hands and that yeah. there's a joke with your Pacifica colleagues about that, what is that joke? So that, that joke is there's very few few of us and sadly true. Like we ran the the numbers in our, our recent um, survey that we've done internally and they're appalling. Because <laughs> jokes often mask an underlying feeling, right? People use yes. humour to cover up pain sometimes or hurt you know yes when you guys joke about that you you know you and your colleagues joke about that what is that what is actually the underlying feeling behind that realization that you can literally count the number of pacifica people in your office on on your on, on one hand i think it's probably a little bit of frustration and mm. just being really you know like it's a, it has become a joke even <laughs> to the point where we laugh about it, but you're right. Like the underlying feeling is frustration, a little bit of anger around why is that? And if it hasn't worked in terms of our current recruitment processes, what do we need to do in order to change it up a little bit? It, it, it also is a call to action for us, which we've started to do. We're, we've started to rally a group of us internally to, to make some change and to, um, yeah, and to change some of the, the systematic changes that need to happen within the fabric of the corporation. I mean, it, it's, it's actually a call to action for everybody. And I just want to paint a picture for people listening to this. 
and that is in New Zealand, Māori and Pacifica people make up 25% of our population, yet only 5% of the technology sector. Mm. And if you look at how this is reflected more globally in technology, in the Western world at least, it's almost 80% white and male. So, I, I mean, I my question mm. is that I wonder how confident are you that the sector, the technology sector, will meaningfully and proactively address these issues? I think they're in order to survive and to be viable in the future, they have to. There are definitely, there has been a change in society. I don't know if you felt it yourself, but I've definitely felt there's been this shift in terms of we actually want to be a much more inclusive society in general. And the way that we used to do things is not no longer acceptable. If you're a company that really puts your business or well, takes your business seriously, but also that you're wanting to provide a service or a product or to people in society, you actually need to start stepping up now. Planning to do so is, is too late, I think. But there's a, an element of, in order for us to do that, we need to have a really good self-reflection on ourselves as organizations. So I'm talking broadly here in terms of workplaces. A lot of workplaces probably haven't done the numbers to see what the makeup is of their um, workforce. We have often hired for skills and experience and, you know, gender has come along as probably something else we need to look at. But we haven't looked at our workforce in a very holistic way. And that's beyond ethnicity. I know there's, there are certain areas that we probably need to focus in on because that has long-term impacts into lifting certain people within society in general. Māori um, Pacific is one of them, which is why that's my, on my um, radar because um, it has long-term for those communities. But there are many, many aspects that could be looked at in, in terms of defining what, diverse, what your diversity profile is for your company and what is it that you want to represent. Yeah, it, it, it has huge impacts as well for how we shape the experiences that we're designing for Correct. the people yes. we're designing for. Yeah, you know, what are some right. of the, yeah, what are some of the, you know, where you work, you know, you lead the design center of expertise, you know, there's a lot of complex problems that you tackle there. And I know research is a part of the design practice there as well. You know, what yeah. sort of things have you been doing in your sphere of influence and workplace to tackle this mm. complex problem of diversity? I think you mentioned in terms of hiring practices, but is there anything else that you've been doing as a company or as a team? Yes. So the, besides the hiring aspect, which is super important, we're also doing a reflection of the, the work that we're doing and how do we connect that into a different way of doing research? So I know I passed on to you the the beautiful Miriam Barabich, who leads the um, Indigenous Design Aotearoa Design Agency, looking at how do we rethink um, our approach to design from using different perspectives and lenses um, in our work, challenging ourselves as designers to be better. And we've never actually done any work specifically for Modern Pacific. It's always been like an add-on or uh, we'll include a few, you know, a few people with access needs or, you know, so there's an element of let's just do some research for this community and see fresh eyes, what comes out of it 
rather than um, the other way around, which is often the way because we've got very busy delivery pipelines, so we <laughs> need to support them and get work out, out the door. But spending some time to really interrogate, do we have the right insights and how do we start building a toolkit of understanding to inform our work? So it goes hand in hand. It's ensuring that your team have a whole range of perspectives which comes from the diversity element and then ensuring that what you're actually doing as a design team has a very inclusive approach to it as well. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit afraid actually of framing this question. Okay. But I'm I'll, I'll, <laughs> hit me with it. Yeah, well I mean this is brave UX. Hopefully it's not stupid <laughs> stupid UX. But um, let me let me frame this question. Okay. What I wanted to to say and ask you was I feel like it's often easy for people like myself, clearly I'm male, clearly I'm white, to have this conversation and and get this say things like or get this sort of sense that it sounds really unfair and you know, obviously something needs to be done about this, but then go back and just, you know, live my life how I was living it before without yeah. really taking any uh, any action to help influence the status quo. Or knowing yes. knowing what to do, and this is the bit that I suppose I was a little bit afraid of asking because I feel like it's um, something that's been covered before in the media, which is white privileged people asking other people what they should be doing about their white privilege. Um, but what I wanted to ask you <laughs> is, you know, what is it that you want this predominantly white male technology sector, you know, these people that are like me that are in design and in technology but are part of that majority ethnicity in this case in the West, it's probably the European and New Zealand, well, European New Zealanders. What do you yeah. want us to really understand or to do or both? You know, what is the thing that we aren't getting because clearly the status quo is not acceptable? Mm. Uh, interesting question. Um, what do we want you to know? I think it's really important to have allies uh, in this together. I think it's an acknowledgement that there is a problem as a start, but there we, we we need everyone to be on board with the realization that it's for all of us. It's not just we're wanting to lift modern Pacific and that's it. By lifting modern Pacific, we actually become a much better society across the board for Aotearoa. And so we all need to be in it together. I think the, the biggest thing, for me, having, you know, because I'm a woman and Samoan and have always come up against struggles, been in, in meetings where I'm the only woman often. And there are a lot of people around the table who of, will often pause uh, the conversation and go, okay, I want to hear from Sachi. So inviting my voice in to be heard. And that's great. I think that's a really good start. But I think the it would be sitting in those rooms and looking around go oh why why do we all look the same and i think the 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 biggest the thing that made me feel so uh, emotional actually was in my team we had a, a little bit of a restructure and some of the team were moved into another part of, of the bank and one of them messaged me and said, it feels very strange here. Everyone looks like me. I can tell the difference. And that was sad in a little way, but also quite rewarding for me because I could, you can feel it. <laughs> There's an aspect of creating a really diverse and inclusive where you can't measure it necessarily. You can't put it in a graph or anything, 
but it's the feeling that people get when they're part of it. That's that's really the ask would be is it that we try and aim to do that together. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's hugely important. Thank you mm. for sharing that with me, Sachi. I really appreciate it. Now, I want to come back to this underrepresentation. That well, this has clearly been the big one of the big themes of today's conversation, and I feel like it's important territory to cover with you. Yes. And that's you mentioned that we're doing this for all of us, and yes. there have been some well-publicized examples of when design and technology teams are to monoculture and Mm. create experiences or products that clearly have harmful consequences. And I think there's any way of stepping around that to other people in society. And and in the article that we've been referencing that you wrote, you talk about some of the ways in which that Often it's well well intentioned. It's unconscious. Yeah. Call it whatever you like, but clearly the outcome is poor. What are yeah. some of the ways that that underrepresentation leads to harmful outcomes or products that you highlighted in that article? Yes, the harmful aspects of it is when there are dire consequences to the result of your product or service. When someone gets marginalised or doesn't have access to it. So when we just talk about accessibility in general, the way if yeah, regardless of yeah, ethnicity or stuff, if we don't build or design products and services to think of all to be inclusive of all society, then there will be people who will be left out, and that number is growing. I think in, within that our demographics across Aotearoa, and it impacts us all. Um, uh, rather that whether that's immediately, you know, I talk about how the the case that's happening currently in in, in Auckland, South Auckland. I'm not immediately impacted, but I have people, you know, that are in my network who are impacted. It would be the same um, across the board for you know, people with access needs too, who you would, as we age, our eyesight is failing. And, you know, we all have instances where we only have one use of one arm or something if we break, you know. So there's, uh, there's elements of if we just take that approach around being more inclusive, it, everyone benefits from it. Mm. One of the examples around about the way. <laughs> yeah, one of the examples that was quite horrific, actually, that you gave in that in that article was the Google Photo app, which is quite a yes. well known one, mistakenly labeling photos of black people as gorillas. Yeah, and I just want people to think about that for a second. Yes. Uh, just take a moment, maybe pause this interview, and just have a think about that, and think about the harm. That, that has caused a, a huge proportion of the world's population mm. unintentionally. Like this is the sort of stuff that we're talking about if we don't have the, if we don't get our diversity mix right in the way in which we create these products, it's hugely harmful. I think Sachi also talked about the New Zealand police making some sort of acknowledgement around some of the AI technology that they were trialling. Yes, that it that it um, adversely targets uh, people from Maori and Pacific um, backgrounds, and I think that's just prevalent throughout uh, society. AI is one aspect of it, but there are definitely, you know, even in, and you can see it a lot in America too, where profiling is is go, goes haywire. Um, yeah, I mean, we're literally I, bu- building this into our products, aren't we? Yes, and it comes from stereotypes that have been created. You know, our own biases that we hold unconscious or consciously uh, within our heads, and so that comes out in the work and the 
as products and services that we create as a result. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about in this segment, which is there was an MIT technology review that covered how credit scoring algorithms similar to the AI that we were talking about mm. in the context of the New Zealand police and how it racially profiled Māori and Pacifica people. Uh, but those credit scoring algorithms keeping people in po poverty. Yes. What was Daniel and Emma Totu's experience of this in New Zealand? So they also had a very similar experience where algorithms in terms of credit scoring, once you have a, a really bad credit score, it's really hard to recover from that, regardless of um, what you do in your life. Uh, as a result. And so we keep people in these cycles of not being able to get a loan or not getting it and be able to get a home loan to buy a house or that absolutely disadvantages a whole lot of people from acquiring uh, wealth. One of the indicators for financial well-being is having a home. The people who are able to, to have assets like land or a home are uh, significantly more advantaged in society than those who don't. And so when you have algorithms or um, credit decisions that are made that go against um, a large uh, community of people, that just takes them out of the equation of ever being able to, to be in that kind of wealthy of wealth category. Yeah. And I'm just going to read a quote from the article, which is from Daniel, just for people mm. to get a bit more context about what you've just said. And he said, it made me feel like as a person, I'm uncomfortable to be a Pacific Islander. Maybe if I wasn't born a Pacific Islander, maybe I would have got a house for my wife and kids already. That's just how I feel. Mm. And I think this is, again, this is probably a moment to pause, honestly, mm. and have a th think about those words of Daniel there. But I mean, these are the impacts and consequences that we're talking about in, in terms of the way in which we design the technology that we uh, are all working on. I mean, they're clearly, clearly outcomes that we, we don't want. No, that's right. To feel. And the pre premise of that article was uh, that uh, the lack of diversity is creating that because you don't have people who have different life experiences or are able to contribute from different perspectives and so therefore of course you're going to create something that you think is is the best um, solution with your own knowledge uh, or the team's knowledge yeah but, uh, but i think for me that quote rung true largely because people who um, like me and like daniel and emma have at some point in time experienced when you have not been accepted. Even I think even for me a reflection, I wouldn't have had it as bad because physically I don't look Samoan, but I do have a very odd looking name. <laughs> you know, it's clearly not uh, European or Western of Western origin. So I have had experiences earlier on where, you know, just trying to apply for a job. This would have been earlier on in my career. And I remember someone saying to me, have you ever thought about changing your name? And I thought, why would I even do that? But then it, it became, a, oh, is it my name that's putting, you know, as, as you screen CVs, do you, is there some element of, of yeah, just going, oh, that's clearly not a, a name that we're familiar with and therefore passing it on. And I think about how that then kind of, 
weaves itself into how we build things like forms where we ask for people to to identify uh, you know characters first names and last names that's very western construct again like most asian names wouldn't have that kind of um, construct within itself but we require people to fill it in in a specific way so that's again denying that there is any other way to have a name than that so all those those types of interrogations of experiences create much better solutions i think in the long run when i worked in the web team we had a whole team in china who serviced Chengdu, china who serviced of the delivery aspects of the website and one of them had come over from from Chengdu to visit us and spend some time with the team and he, his name was Jared and I was calling out to him he was sitting on the desk across from me I was Jared Jared and he didn't respond at all and then I trying to wave at him and calling out his name turns out that that's actually not his name <laughs> he had a Chinese name but used Jared because in the requirement from his employer I don't, back in was that they had a Western name where they communicated with everyone from you know overseas when usually email correspondence and he'd never heard it verbally you know that, that was kind of the first time uh, and so I thought why are we even asking you to, you know that how terrible is that that we require people to take on different names just to make ourselves comfortable <laughs> um yeah literally wear a disguise in order yes. to get by yes and make my life easy when i could just spend some time getting to know how to pronounce your name you know like what's wrong with it <laughs> and again so it's i don't know where i'm going with this point but it, it feels like the little elements like that were being inclusive is just seeing people for who they are and accepting them and taking some time to be respectful about that and some time to learn more about them. There's so much goodness that comes from just taking that time. Yeah, there are some good things going on in our industry, but there's a long, long way to go. Sachi, if you could get a message out to all young Pacifica people about design yes. and technology, what would that message be? I think my message for Young Pacifica would be to dream big and to be brave. Yeah, this whole talk is brave UX. I think we all, there's an element of being really true to yourself. If I had done that earlier on in life, I wouldn't have gone down the medical road that my dad wanted me to do. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been more on the creative path, which I actually ended up being on um, much sooner on in life. So there's an aspect of knowing what, you want to do what you're really good at uh, you know the ikigai principle i always talk about that with my team internally the japanese again this is where i bring my japanese yeah, side tell us into about it, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so ikigai is a whole philosophy of living so it's it has a, a dimension around knowing what you love to do knowing what you're good at knowing what's good for society or the environment or the wider world and then what you get paid for and once you can identify those four things what comes together is either your vocation or your mission in life or your profession and that requires a, a little bit of reflection uh, on your part and it can change over time because ikigai is not about having the perfect balance or understanding it. it's all it's learning that as you go along so as you're branching out 
studying, you may have different things that you love and are good at. And, and as you go through life, then it kind of moves along with you. So I'm a huge advocate for just being able to, to verbalize that in a conversation. And often I do that with my mentees. So what are you really good at? And what do you love doing? And half the time our conversation is just based on that. They will often say, well, I'm not sure yet. That's fine. But what are the things that you are in your flow when you're in that flow where you're just, you're um, super happy and, um, and uh, yeah, what, what are those moments and what is it about that moment that you're really motivated and interested and engaged about? Yeah, really important things to consider. Mm-hmm. Sachi, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's been quite a, a deep conversation as well. You know, we've really gotten into some really important issues today. It's been so valuable hearing your perspective and experiences on that. So, fa'a fetai telilava. Thank you for so generously sharing those with me today. Fa'a fetai telilava, Brendan. And also I'm on your pronunciation. <laughs> I was worried. Ma lo lava. <laughs> Thank You're you. You're very brave. So well done. <laughs> it's a very small thing for me to be able to do. Sachi, it really is. And you're most welcome. Sachi, if people want to find out more about you and the things that you're up to in your practice, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I think just uh, connecting on LinkedIn is probably the best way to um, get in contact with me. I'm more than happy to, to have further conversations with people as, and learn from um, others as well in this space. Perfect. Thanks, Sachi. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been really great to have you here and listening to such an important episode. Everything that we've covered today will be in the show notes, including where you can find Sachi and any of the resources that we've mentioned. I think I'll put a link in there to Ikigai as well. If you enjoyed the show (laughs) and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX, design and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.